Our passage this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20. We'll look at verse 3. It's the first commandment. And just as a reminder, we are going through this spring, the Ten Commandments. And last week we looked at the prologue and sort of did a general introduction. And the theme not only then, but really throughout the entire series is that the law really does bring freedom. It really does set you free. If we are redeemed in Christ, then the law is a beautiful thing. And it shows us how to live and grow in Him. One commentator though, or not though, one commentator says that if the prologue, last week's discussion, proves the motiv- provides the motivation for the Ten Commandments, then the first commandment provides the conceptual framework for the rest of them to be understood. So this first commandment has to be grasped. We have to understand what God means by worshiping Him alone in order to grasp the following nine. So, with that said, look at verse 3 of chapter 20. It's going to be a long reading this morning. Bear with me. Don't blink or, or nod off. You'll miss it. You shall have no other gods before me. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we long for it to be said of us that we have no other gods before you. But everybody here knows otherwise. Our hearts are constantly looking to worship the created order. Thank you that you forgive us. Thank you that you know this about us and that you love us anyway. And my prayer is that this morning your spirit would show us the beauty of worshiping you alone. Amen. 1990 film called Awakenings starring Robert De Niro and Robin Williams. I remember seeing it in the theater. It's a story uh, that is based on a true story. This doctor, played by Robin Williams, he was looking over a population of patients that had that were basically, um, what's the word, catatonic. They were, they, were, uh, they were asleep. They were sitting there in a vegetative state. But there, were a, there was a subset of that group that had interesting symptoms, like he would throw a pencil and they could catch it, or a ball. Or the star played by uh, Robert De Niro, the main guy, Leonard, his, he, this is not good, we don't advocate Ouija boards, but he could take a Ouija board and he could actually write out words and communicate with the doctor. And the doctor realized there's this interesting population, and as he began to connect in dots, he realized all of the ones that had these strange symptoms had suffered from encephalitis lethargica. I don't know what that is. Somebody else might tell me an epidemic that went from 1917 to 28. So the, these folks all had hope. And there was a medication they experimented with. And sure enough, as the story goes on, the awakenings begin to happen. And we find Robert De Niro, his character, Leonard, not only coming fully to himself, but wanting to leave the hospital. He was completely functional, even having a romantic relationship. It's an, it's an amazing movie, and it's amazingly hopeful And I would say, that's what I think the gospel provides, is this hope of being awakened. See, I think so often we come to the Ten Commandments or the law, and we just see them as being punitive or negative. But God is giving us hope in the Ten Commandments. And in this first commandment, he's saying, the gospel awakens Christians. It awakens you. It awakens I. But here's what it does. It to offer our entire lives as a living sacrifice to him. So, my job this morning is to convince you that that's a great thing. 
I hope you already believe it, but I want to talk more about it. So, we're offering our whole lives to God as an act of worship. Understanding that, believing that, doing that will awaken us. We're going to look at three things. Where we go wrong, where we, why we go wrong, and how we get back. Can you remember that outline? Pretty easy. So, there we go. Where we go wrong. When you look at this command, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And it raises a few questions right off the bat. Number one, are there other gods? And is he saying, hey, there's a couple of options. Secondly, is he saying, and not only is that, is that true, I just prefer that you don't have them above me. You know, don't put them ahead of me. And of course, I would answer a definitive note to both of those questions. In chapter 19, a few weeks ago, we looked at God saying to Israel, you're my treasured possession. You are a royal priesthood. And then he says, but the entire earth is mine. So God is very clear throughout the Old Testament. I am the only God. Of course, you remember Elijah uh, making just comic relief of the, of the prophets of Baal. We see all throughout the Old Testament, God is the only God. And then also in Deuteronomy 6, right after the Ten Commandments are delivered again, we see uh, what's called the Shema, where it says, you shall love the Lord your God and worship Him with your I don't have it perfect in there with your heart, your heart, whole soul, your strength, your might. In other words, everything in you worships God. So to answer those two questions that this commandment seems to raise, no, no other gods exist, and we should have no other god besides Yahweh as our object of affection. But we do go wrong, right? We go wrong, and and, and Israel went wrong. What's interesting is. When this was delivered to Israel, this was new. Like every other religion had, had tons of gods. So this was kind of like, really? You're the one God? You're the only God? It was brand new for them. But how about for you and I? Like, is this archaic? Is this sort of, okay, back then, some 4,000 years ago, they maybe didn't realize it. We get this. We're Christians. Or even if we're not, if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, at least you could buy into the fact that, it, that Christianity wants you to believe and worship one God, right? But what, a, what, what, what do you do? Do you see the idolatry in your life today at all? Is that something that you even struggle with? We don't make little carved images, do we? We don't typically construct little things that we set on a counter in our house. But Calvin has one of the best definitions of idolatry in the Institutes where he says, and he's referring back to Rachel in Genesis 31, she had stolen one of her dad's idols and snuck it into her tent. And he's explaining this by saying, we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Our mind, he says, is full in its pride and boldness. We dare to imagine God according to our own capacity. And it says, as our minds sluggishly plod, it is indeed overwhelmed with this, this the crassest ignorance, and it conceives an unreality, an empty appearance of God. In other words, we take things and we infuse them and say, that is God for me. And that's what idolatry is. Another more modern definition, it's in your worship guide. Ed Welch says this, a favorite strategy of sin is to take objects that in themselves are good, things that are admired and enjoyed, and gradually transform them into objects of idolatrous worship. The list is endless. Here's the list. Love, 
money, power, beauty, comfort, rest, and so on. These objects all fine in themselves can become ruling idols and lusts. Sin can furtively transform good things into, into foreign gods that enslave. So, do you believe that? Do you believe in your life there are things that you are prone to allow to take over? Do you believe you go there? And maybe said another way, do you think it's on par with what happened in ancient times, like with Israel and with idol worship, right? Or do you say, no, I believe that I believe in one God and, and that's who I worship and I've never struggled with idolatry. Ryan's stretching it. And it would be a stretch, it seems like. Can you imagine Israel? I mean, they've come. Let's just recap. God shows up through Moses and says, I'm going to rescue you. And he provides ten plagues. And each time, he shows that he's more dominant than Egypt's gods. Then, he kills the firstborn of the Egyptians who won't relent. He rescues them. They leave Egypt. Israelites come through. And he actually kills the pursuing armies of Egypt. This is God. This is their one God. Then, he provides a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night to guide them. They get hungry and complain. He gives them manna, right, the bread of life. He also gives them quail to eat. They get thirsty. He gives them their waters at Meribah, right, and he gives them the water from a rock. Also, at Sinai, excuse me, he makes the waters pure at Meribah, and at Sinai, they flow freely out of the gushing mountain. I mean, he's totally taking care of his people. They would never. I mean, they wouldn't. We struggle because we don't see all that. They saw all of that, and they would never turn. Then we have Exodus 19. The smoke billows down the mountain. They, it, the mountain's trembling. Moses goes up to meet with God. They're waiting patiently. And you know the rest of the story, right? They receive the Ten Commandments, and they follow along perfectly for the rest of their, their lives, right? And that's what Israel does. Or, in verse, chapter 32, they get tired of waiting for Moses, He's up on the mountain. They're like, okay, this guy's been gone a while. Hey, I know what we'll do. Aaron, come here. And they all gather together. Take off your gold earrings. Let's make some calves. Some, some little tiny cows. Baby cows called calves, for those of you in Stillwater who don't know terminology. And let's worship these. That's what we'll do. And it's almost comical. I hate to say that because it's not funny in the, in the least. But verse 6 of chapter 32, And they rose up early, the next day, and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings to these little calves, okay, or calf, whether it was one or they each had one. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. They just had a good old fun time. Thus is idolatry. They already forgot about Yahweh. I don't, the smoke's probably still there. And they decided to worship a calf. If that's true of them who've seen all of those things, do you buy into the fact that that's true of all of us? Our hearts are constantly going, and I bet right now, many of you, Ryan's stumbling, he's boring me. What can I think about to entertain myself? Maybe it's lunch or the game. We all love idols, just to call you out. Um, and so, why do we go wrong? That's what's wrong, idolatry. Now we move into point number two. But why do we do this? If this is true of us, why is it happening? And the answer is, human beings are worshipers. Every one of us. I don't care if you're an atheist, 
or you're the most religious person ever, you have to buy into the fact that you and I worship. Theologians call this the affections of the heart. Our hearts are animated by our affections. Edwards says in his work on religious affections that if you took away the affections, the most avid businessman would not operate their business anymore. Because it's not purely logical. We think it is. I need to make money to feed the family. To, so that's how we think our lives work. It's not true. We're animated by our heart's passions. And we are worshipers. And the problem for us then is that we are also in, we have creativity. We're made in the image of God. And so when God no longer is our desire, we are able to create idols out of thin air. And we do this all the time. And what makes an idol different from just what I would call standard sin is that it's actually a good thing. So the way you attack an idol, unfortunately, is not just taking it out of your life, always, though sometimes you might, because oftentimes it's necessity, like money. That has to be the chief idol of our culture, money. In fact, everything we do, we measure by money, right? And that guy's a good athlete. Well, how much does he get paid? I mean, everything we do, right? You have a good job, yeah, what are you gonna get what are you gonna get paid? What's the starting salary? Right? That's a beautiful home. How much would it cost you? We, everything we do we quantify with money. I think a very close idol to money in our culture is children. I'm gonna get in trouble, but I don't mind because I have four of them. But we worship our children. If they cry, we feel horrible inside. We've done something wrong. And they know that by the way. They learn early how to manipulate. Um, do you believe this is true in your life? What are the idols of your heart? Do you believe that the sin in your heart is so defiant that you could turn even a little piece of paper into an object of worship? Would everybody buy into that? Just a little tiny two-inch by three-inch sheet of paper. I lay it right here. Is it possible that somebody would worship that piece of paper? Well, the other day on the Today Show, after the lottery was over, three winners had been announced. Only one came forward, and this is their infinite wisdom. They decided, let's go to the Today Show and tell the whole world. They hadn't gone to the authorities to turn in their ticket. They kept it. And they show up on the Today Show, and they're sitting there like this. Anyone see that? And you're just going, okay, are you crazy? Everybody on planet Earth is coming after you. And they had their little ticket with these numbers on it. Okay, you say, Ryan, but they didn't worship that. Or, or maybe better said, it's the lottery ticket. That's not a piece of paper, but it is. It's infused with what its value is. The calf for, for Israel was not what they worshipped. They worshipped the idea that they would now have food. And they, would, they were hoping that maybe by doing this, some false god would give them more cattle and more flourishing. right? And so this little piece of paper... What does it offer? It offers freedom, doesn't it? It offers, it offers identity. It offers tra- transcendence from the rest of mankind. That's what people are after in that one little sliver of paper. And even the people on the, uh, and on the Today Show, these are wealthy, you know, they, they're news people, but they've, they've made it. They're, they're hosting the Today Show. We're like, wow, that's, is that the real ticket? Can I touch the ticket? They were worshiping in a way. Imagine... Um, or, or the, uh, another example is the Ark of the Covenant, which is actually in the Scriptures a good thing, right? It's, it's where God it was His throne. He wasn't contained in it, but it was His throne. Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember this? They, they actually found the Ark of the Covenant, and it was, ama- it was kind of the grossest, scary scene at the end. I won't go into all the details there. 
But they found this ark. Now remember, the ark is what Moses is learning about on the mountain. He comes down, and we won't go. He finds them worshiping the calf. They break the Ten Commandments. He goes back up. Anyway, they build the tabernacle. It, it contains the ark, and that becomes this, the, the representation of Yahweh for Israel until it gets captured. But remember, even the Philistines took it thinking it was too much good luck for Israel, and they, they captured it. And then they took it back. They're like, you can have it. It's hurting us. It's ruining us. And even David, when he got it back, uh, they started transporting it on a cart. That kind of stumbled. Remember when we talked about Uzzah having to grab it and he dies? I mean, this is the Ark of the Covenant. If there's anything to idolize, it's this. And yet it's not supposed to be idolized. It isn't the actual house of God. And so in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, they kind of make it into this magical thing. But remember the ending of that movie? The camera kind of, they put it into a box and they seal it up in a wooden box. And as the camera pans back, there's like maybe 5,000 boxes just like it. Do you, does anybody remember that? Everyone's like, yeah, I better say yes or he's going to keep asking us. I, the, the point of that scene is it's lost its power because it's just like these other boxes. We'll never know which one was real. It ceased to be amazing because it can no longer, it, it cannot differentiate itself from all the other ones. And that really is the essence of idolatry and the essence of pride is is, is we want things that make us bigger and make us better and give us more hope than everybody else. Even that lottery ticket would be useless. If everybody on earth won $1.5 billion, just have a lot of inflation, and everything would cost the same, right? So it, it, you have to have more. So idolatry is, is infused with your worship because you're wanting it to grant you something greater than other people. Okay, that's the negatives. Are you all tired of the negatives? Are we ready for the positives? How do we get back? How do we get back to worshiping God alone? There is a great sermon turned into a book, and Shane mentioned it a few weeks back when he preached, maybe months ago, called The uh, Expulsive Power of a New Affection by Thomas Chalmers, a Puritan. And in this book, he's talking about the affections we already talked about. And he's saying, okay, all of us have these affections, this idolatry, and we're aiming them at wrong things. And they should be aimed at God. That's the point. God deserves our worship. God is the one that we should want to worship. But he makes the point that the problem is, if all you're doing is just trying to remove, okay, I think I love money too much, or okay, I love this or that too much, and you just start to move those items out of your life, it leaves a vacuum, and something else will take its place. But the answer is restoring God to his rightful place. We are made to worship. God's made to be worshipped. And that's the answer. So every Sunday we gather here and we worship God. And hopefully daily, hopefully, we all, and maybe not every day, but hopefully we're coming and having private worship time whether with our family and individually. And what we're doing in worship is we're saying, God, you are the center of our world. We love you. But it can feel, at first, kind of awkward. And this is where I want to get a little bit hopefully helpful, there is a common misconception that people who uh, are stronger Christians just have this natural worship capability. We just, we. I'm the pastor. Maybe I'm over there. Maybe I'm not. But I just woke up one day going, I love to sing and praise God. That's not true. In fact, every day I have a natural resistance to that. It takes repentance and faith. And I will talk about that in a minute. But here's how I want to prove this. CrossFit. 
So I've done that for seven months now. I now have the freedom to use it as an illustration. Unfortunately, Thomas is not here. Thomas Towers, you, you would know him. He has, I won't describe Thomas. His dad and mom own Red Dirt CrossFit. But I remember, uh, anyone know what CrossFit is? Shane, Lizzle CrossFit, anyone? Oh, yeah, we got Wyatt does CrossFit. He's been doing it longer than I have by, by a long shot. Have you ever turned on television and watched the CrossFit games? Anybody? What do you think? Those people are crazy. They're going to hurt themselves. They're animals. They're doing dumb things. They seem to be worshipful. I mean, this is their life. Well, they weren't born like that, okay? There was that moment, like I had the day I first walked in, where you're just like, what is that dude, you know? And then they say, oh, this isn't a gym. It's a box. Crazy lingo. What? A box? We don't do the workout. We do the wad, the workout of the day, right? And you have to learn all this strange lingo. And then you have to learn movements that are really awkward and weird. And, and it takes a lot of time and repetition to finally go, this is fun. Because that's how we're built. And I want to encourage you that worship is like that. That just because every time we open the Bible or you hear the song start to play, your heart is not 100% engaged, doesn't mean that you're not worshiping. It means that we have to kind of wipe the dust off, that the cobwebs have gathered, and that we have to kind of go through the motion, the effective nature of our personhood, to all of a sudden go, this is a good song. Now I'm getting into this. Now that I'm singing, I'm hearing other voices, I'm reading the Word, now I feel the worship. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's make this practical then. Here you are. You're, let's say tomorrow morning, I'm going to do what Ryan's talking about. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship God. And so you open your Bible, and it feels exceedingly foreign to you. You turn to a psalm, and it says a great thing. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you, O God? Whom have I on earth but you, O Lord? And you read that and go, ah, I, I feel that, but what's going wrong? It's that same moment I had this morning when I saw the sunset. What is it? You don't feel worthy. You don't feel worthy. I've I got to laugh for that. Oh, sunrise. Goodness. That my, that's what my son hears. Uh, how was the sermon? Well, I remember you said sunrise instead of sunset or whatever. Backwards. We, don't, we come to Scripture, we come to our personal worship time, and we feel somehow on the outside. And here's the question. Do you believe that Jesus loves you? See, so often the church's mistake is we say this. If you're a Christian, you always believe your love and you feel it and you just, you're just walking with Jesus. And then if you're not a Christian, you don't feel those things. But the truth is that if you're a Christian, you often, if not most of the time, don't feel those things. Because we believe the lies of Satan, we believe the lies of our flesh, and we come to worship and we don't feel worthy. And so I want to make sure we understand this. The center of your worship will be repentance and faith every day. Every day. So you come to the Scriptures, you open them, and you give thanks. And you read them. But you're also going to need to confess to the Lord, Lord, help my unbelief. I don't believe these things. And maybe there are particular sins to confess. Or maybe it's simply just a, the sin of unbelief. That, Lord, I, I read this, but I tend to live as if it's not true for me. Now let me remind you of Isaiah. Remember when he goes before the throne of God, the greatest worship you're going to ever see. And he, he's engaged in it. He sees it. He sees the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. And what is his response? 
Woe is me. How many of you would say, oh, you're being too hard on yourself, brother? No. You would say, woe are all of us. Right? Who are we? You know, he's recognizing that even his best actions, his best prophecy, his best use of his, of his tongue has been woefully short. And he's repentant. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I, I, I worship with people and I lead and I dwell amongst the people with unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the glory of God. And the angel comes and touches him with the coal and wraps him in righteousness. Do you believe that you are wrapped in righteousness? Is that your view of the Christian life? I commend to you this book. So I don't know if you all follow, well, I don't know how many things. J.I. Packer recently was diagnosed with some sort of an eye disorder. So it's very sad. A lot of friends on Facebook that I have have been lamenting that his ministry is coming to an end. But he's one of the most amazing reformed writers. So I recommend him in general. Specifically, this book called Rediscovering Holiness. Most of you are like, oh, well, maybe you should read it. Um, the very middle chapter is on repentance. And the title of the chapter is Growing Downward to Grow Up, The Life of Repentance. I want to read to you this section that he gives. It's from actually another writer he's quoting. He says, with monotonous regularity, the saints all tell us that they are the chief of sinners. To non-Christians, and I would say to many other Christians, this is sometimes extremely irritating. It seems like an affectation, a mere manner of speaking. That those who are obviously so good should condemn themselves in such extravagant fashion. But there is no doubt that when the saints from St. Paul on have used those expressions, chief of sinners, etc., they do so because they could not speak of this in any other way. It is paradoxical but true that progress in saintliness always means at the same time progress in repentance. It is not hard to see why this is so. We have spoken of the enlightenment of the conscience by the Holy Spirit, and it is only the enlightened conscience of so the Spirit's opened our eyes. It's only that conscience that can see and take sin seriously as it needs to be taken. With increasing knowledge, there is an even or an ever deeper sensitiveness to our failure to make the best of the opportunities that God has given. Perhaps, this is perhaps, the actual and identifiable sins in these saints are few, perhaps, but given such opportunities as have been given us, what would Jesus have made of those opportunities? So here's, I want you to, if you've tuned me out, you kind of thought, that's great, I'm going to move on now to my other thoughts. Listen to the wrap up. To move forward on the road of holiness means to know Jesus better. I'm going to say that again. To move forward on the road to holiness means to know Jesus better. To have Him always return. The better we come to know Him, the more plainly we shall see how little like Him we actually are. When you conceive of growing as a Christian, when you conceive of worshiping God, are you trying to get better? Or are you trying to know God more? Are you longing for Jesus to become more and more real to you? Is that your hope? Thomas Chalmers in this book, um, The Explosive Power of a New Affection, he says, look, at the very end, he says, it's based on the acceptance of Jesus and nothing else. If you base any of your standing with God on anything else, 
it'll be a loss. But when you base it on Christ alone, he says, even though people will be fearful that you'll be, he uses the word antinomian. He means licentious. Well, Jesus loves me no matter what. I can do whatever I want. He says, no. What you will do is you will have a new affection and you will worship God. And here's the example he closes with. A man is, it's kind of weird. A man's on the, at the edge of the earth and he looks out over all the world and he sees villages and communities and, and vistas that look great enough and they have great people there and it looks attractive enough. And, he, and it's sort of like, that's your idols. Okay? And then he says, or you look out over this black void and he says, that's how most Christianity deals with it. Like, well, you can choose God, this kind of black void, or these things that kind of all of a sudden look a lot better, don't they? Like, well, uh, I'm going to go over here. At least I have a restaurant and some friends. He says, but here comes an island floating through the air that is even more beautiful than anything you can see on earth. More beautiful imagery, more beautiful mountains and people, and not attractive people, but they love each other. And, and the families love and care for one another, and the jobs and the businesses are running beautifully. And he says, that is so glorious that you would then opt for that over the idol. And that's the point I'm trying to make and the point he's trying to make. We long for heaven. And in Christ, we know there's a far country that's coming there. And when we live there and dwell there and worship there, we will look back on all the things that are in our daily lives. We won't reject them, but we won't worship them, right? When a football team loses, I tread on, on hallowed ground, we'll say something like, well, I guess the better team won, right? Or basketball, or golf, or anything we do. Because what we tend to do is we tend to get despondent, right? When our spouse criticizes us, we won't melt away. Because we have Christ. We don't like it. We want to improve, but it doesn't have to melt me. When my child cries, I don't have to feel like the worst parent on planet Earth anymore because I'm no longer worshiping the fact that my child has to dictate how I feel. These idols can't threaten me any longer. Does that make sense? So the way up is the way down through repentance. So Awakenings, does anyone remember the ending of that movie? It's really a depressing movie. Because after they go through a period of time where you're like, wow, they're all normal and great, and Robert De Niro's got a girlfriend. This is awesome. They all start showing symptoms again of their illness. And eventually, by the end of the movie, this is going to keep every one of you from ever watching this movie, they end up back right where they were in their catatonic state. Does that cheer you up? Well, here's what I'm saying. The gospel is something that needs to be reignited every day. Jesus loves you, even if you don't repent. But you will become catatonic by not going to Him in worship. Does that make sense? Listen to Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. What is Paul saying? I've preached the gospel for 11 chapters. 11 chapters I've convinced you that Jesus loves you. Now, what do you do in response? By nature, because God has now come in and he's alive into you. You see the island floating across. You want to be there. He says, do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
that by testing you, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Is that exciting or is that overwhelming? I hope it's exciting. You are loved and accepted by Jesus. So you now have the freedom to bring your life before him and say, Lord, I offer you my life, knowing that he won't crush you like the idols will, but he'll revive you and you'll have true freedom. Let's pray. Father, we are, um, I think, afraid of coming to you like that. Because there is still that unbelief that if we give you our lives, you'll take away the fun. If we give you our hearts, you'll take away what we love. Forgetting, Lord, that you are the one that gave us everything that we love. That you are the God who comes close. You are the one that brings not only salvation, but full life in you, everlasting. Holy Spirit, please give us belief this morning that we may rest in you alone and not in the false identities our idols try to give us. Lord, help us to know that you are our God and we can worship you alone in prayer. In your name we pray. Amen.